Amen. Thank you, worship team. Well, I was uh, one that got to be a part of the uh, men's conference over the weekend. Thanks for all of those who were leadership in that. It's always a stretching step of faith for you as you are uncertain as the number that will register, but I got the word that there were 325 men who came to that conference, you know? Amen. So thanks. What a great opportunity. I hope it turns out just as well or even better for the ladies. That it'll just be a glorious, glorious time. Make sure you make it a point to be a part of that. All right. We have been looking at um, the teaching of Jesus here and in, for a number of months now in the book of Matthew. And what we've seen so far has been this clear teaching of Jesus to manifest his credentials. He's clearly revealing that he is God Almighty. He is the sovereign God of the universe. He is the promised one. And, and the teaching that he was giving in the midst of this was fresh and exciting because it was contrary to the death that had been put upon them through the religious leaders of the day. There was no freedom. There was no celebration like we had this morning. This is a wonderful thing. So we see then that Jesus now is giving some of the responses. We've seen some of that already because Jesus spoke against the religious leaders that some of the people rejected that. And some even called him a blasphemer. Uh, can, can you imagine that, <laughs> calling God a blasphemer? But that's what they believed, and they were convicted of that. Last week, we saw one response, and that was a true believer, John the Baptist, who had doubt. And God answered that. He answered it by saying, look at my credentials. Not only what I've said, but what I do. And the evidence then would overwhelmingly draw you into the conclusion that Jesus is exactly who he said he was and who he is. Well, today we see two other responses. One was a response of doubt. The next two are given by people who are not followers, who are not believers. And he addresses them. One would be the group that is given to us in verses 16 to 19, and they are um, critics. They're just complaining. They're opposed. And so they're not satisfied, and so they make criticism. And the second group are those who are indifferent. I want you to understand something, that when we look at the Scriptures, the objective that uh, Jesus had, and not only Jesus, but also John the Baptist, the objective has always been that men and women, boys and girls, repent. We've seen that a couple of times in this passage. Meaning then that Jesus coming upon the scene recognizing that mankind was going in the wrong direction. And their primary wrong direction was they were trying to bring about salvation through their own means. And Jesus already described that in the great discourse that he gave in the Sermon on the Mount. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you can't be part of the kingdom of heaven. 
So like John the Baptist, Jesus preached the same message, repent. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repentance means that you change your direction. You're no longer going to go in this direction, but based upon conviction and truth, you're now changing your direction and you're going this way. The end objective was always, as Jesus preached and John preached, was to repent, repent. Now you can do several things in response to that. You can embrace that and repent, or you can become a critic or even become indifferent. So Jesus initially addresses then those who are critical of his ministry. And it's interesting how he starts that out. Oh, by the way, um, Paul even addresses this when he was writing his son in the faith, Timothy, in his last words to him in 2 Timothy, he says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. Now, he reminds those true followers, but you... Be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So he's already talked about this reality that Paul is saying that there are going to be those who are not embracing this. So Jesus, as I said, addresses those who are critical of what Jesus was doing, actually what John the Baptist was doing. Notice how he starts out in verse 16. But, what, but to what shall I compare this generation? This is a pretty common rabbinical style of teaching. And what they would do is they would raise a question that they wanted to make a point in regards to, and then they would give a parallel kind of parable that would be able to reveal what was going on in the hearts of the people. So now, it is also interesting to observe these, what shall I do with this generation? We even read in the book of Hebrews in regards to the Israelites because of their unbelief. He says, and this generation I was upset with. So it seems to me that generations, our generation, the time in which we live, can be characterized by God, either in judgment or celebration. But he asked, he said, you know, what what shall I compare this generation? As I look at it, Jesus is saying, as I observe all that is going on, what would I say about this generation? Now, here then he draws as an illustration uh, uh, characteristics of children in play. Now, he's going to teach a sobering lesson in the midst of this, but he's going to teach through children. I don't know you who are grandparents, if one of the delightful things I hope you enjoy is being around the imagination of young children. Uh, the, we used to say, uh, when I was a kid growing on, we thought it was one word in the South there, plaque, you know, plaque, plaque, you're the, you're the good guy, and I'll plaque, I'm the bad guy, it's play-like. Well, I love it. Little, uh, my little youngest granddaughter here, uh, Charlotte, 
she uh, loves to get in the hot tub with granddad. And she says, so we can play McDonald's. <laughs> and so what that means is that I get in there, I'm the customer, she's the waitress. And she just goes to full sink. And she says, welcome to McDonald's. How can I help? I mean, just as exuberant. I would hire her. I would hire her. <laughs> welcome to McDonald's. How can I help you? And I said, well, I'd like a cheeseburger. We don't have any cheeseburgers. <laughs> every time I order a cheeseburger, every time, she says, we don't have them. I said, well, what do you have? Well, we have McNuggets, we have French fries, and uh, a drink. What would you like? I said, hey, I'll have that. That'll be great. Then she goes over to the little control panel there with her imagination, like she's speaking to someone on the other side, and, uh, and she's going to talk into where you raise the heat, turn on the pumps, and so forth, and she looks into that. Every time she does this, this what was that you wanted? <laughs> she does that. I mean, it's crazy. And then I order it, and, and then I, and I always tell her, I said, well, how much is that? She says, $3. I said, I don't have any money. Said, well, I have some. And then she gives me $3. Great imagination. And you know, honestly, I think uh, one of the problems with us that grow up, we, we lose some of our creative imagination. We quit dreaming. We quit enjoying life, you know? Let's learn from these little kids that play like. Well, in this case, Jesus was talking about a very common experience that everyone would be familiar with, and that is children at play in the marketplace. This was an area that could be at times empty, but oftentimes crowded with people, and when families would come there, the children would gather and they would play. And the two things that apparently they didn't have McDonald's then, but they played uh, weddings and funerals. That's That's what their celebration was. Now, so, and you can well imagine then, and as Jesus probably observed them, that for the, the wedding, and I, I don't know how they outlined that, you know, who, who's going to be the groomsman, who's going to be the bride, and, and then, and then they we're going to have happy music, and this is a, a great time, and, and so we're playing the flute, an imaginary flute, and people are walking there, and people are celebrating, a bride's brought in, and, uh, and there's that celebration. Well, like all kids, after they play for a little while, they get bored with that, and let's play something else. And then one kid would suggest... Well, let's play funeral. Now, not near as exciting as a wedding. I don't know. I've often thought I, they probably had a lot of volunteers for the bride. I don't know how many volunteers they had for the body. You know, who, who wants to be the dead person? Their lines are easy. They had to lie there. And so then they would, the music was quieter. And uh, sometimes at, at funerals, there would be um, uh, the beating of a drum or the professional Criers that would come there and wail out, and this great agony that would be there, and, and these kids would just play that out. They just act it right out. Both of those things would be done, and uh, and then there would also be those that I'm sure that reluctant to move from a wedding to a funeral, and I don't want to play that. I want to play this, and there are complaints that would go on, and kids do what they do. Not only do they have a great imagination. 
but they can also be pretty selfish and they want their own way. So Jesus gives this parable, this illustration, this generation. And he's really saying that you're, you're very fickle, you're unstable, you know, you really don't know what you want. And so then he brought, draws it into a focus here. Notice as he says here, verse 17, we played the flute for you. Now he's used the illustration of them in the marketplace And he's saying, we played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. And now, specifically, he's talking about John's ministry and Jesus' ministry. John's ministry is now being equated more to a funeral, more to a time of sobering judgment. And, of course, we see that. I mean, John was a was an unusual man out in the wilderness, and he was, um, he was condemning the religious leaders. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you brood of vipers, who warned you to, from the wrath of God, to flee from the wrath of God. He talked about God's winnowing fork in his hand, blowing the breeze of judgment. He talked about one who would baptize with fire. He talked about one who would judge. I mean, that was a rightful anticipation if you, as I said last week, you only could see part of the coming of Jesus. And that would be um, that time of judgment. And then if you recall last week, as he opened up, Jesus opened up his ministry in Isaiah 61, he read about favorable, 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 and it stopped. And the next part of Isaiah 61 goes into judgment. And what Jesus was saying in the introduction of his ministry was, this is not a time of judgment, this is really a time of blessing. Even uh, John's, uh, John the Baptist's disciples came to Jesus on one occasion. He said, I, I just don't understand. We don't understand this. We're mourning and uh, we're fasting and your disciples are partying. What's going on here? He said, yeah. And Jesus answered. He said, the bridegroom's with them. I'm here. And, and of course, we also hear Jesus referring to the church as the bride of Christ. He said, this is a time of celebration. I'm in your presence. But John the Baptist then would be the one who would be fulfilling the funeral dirge that was there, the judgment, the sobering part that would be proclaimed. And then Jesus, in contrast, would be the one who was celebrating. He went to weddings. Uh, He was there when there was death, and he was talking about life and, and freedom and the way to pursue life and the joy. Even on one occasion, he said, I've come that my joy may, may, may be made full in you. This is my goal. This is my ministry. He talked about salvation. He talked about deliverance. He talked about grace. And he talked about mercy. This is a time of deliverance. This is celebration time. And, of course, that would be the wedding that would be looked at there and the celebration that was there. Now, the interesting thing about John the Baptist and Jesus is they had the same message. The same message, a different methodology, but it was the same message. It wasn't a new message. Jesus had good news and John didn't. Both had the news, and that is repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you want to be part of what God is doing, repent. Jesus said it and John said it. 
Now, when you don't like the message, and this was the case, they didn't like the message. They didn't like the message that said that people are falling short. They don't measure up. They didn't like the message that the scribes and the Pharisees were missing that. They didn't like the, the fact that uh, all of their righteousness are as filthy robe, you know, rags. They didn't, like, they didn't like that. What was true then is true today. When you don't like the message, you attack the messenger. You try to discredit them. Now, that doesn't go on today. There is, you know, on the public forum, I never hear anybody attacking the character of others. Do you? Well, perhaps you have been watching the news. But they attack the messenger. And the message was exactly the same. You may have experienced that even in your own life because you've stood up for your faith and uh, you are uncompromising in your convictions like John the Baptist, and people have um, mocked you, or they've laughed at you, or they've uh, talked behind your back, or whatever, but they have criticized who you are because they don't like the message that you're sharing. Now, I want to say to you, keep sharing the message. There's a reason that I say that to you. It's because of what Jesus says in this very end expression while dealing with the critics. Notice what Jesus says here. Oh, by the way, uh, what they called, (laughs) interesting what they called, they called John the Baptist and said, John had a demon. Now, the reason they would say that John had a demon is because they often associated mental illness with demonic possession. And I think John would have given them some credible information that would have made them perhaps draw that conclusion living out in the desert, dressed in camel hair, eating locusts for lunch, um, having a strange message. They said, man, oh man, do you hear what he's saying? That man has to be nuts. He is crazy. He is demon-possessed. Well, when, about Jesus, and I can't imagine this, but they said this. Well, look at Jesus. He's, he's, uh, he's a glutton. He, he overindulges. He's, he, he's a wine bibber. He drinks wine. He associates with sinners. I mean, how can the world, how can you believe what he's saying? Look at who he is. One of the things we're learning on Wednesday morning is in our study of 1 Peter, we talked about it last week, but Jesus said that we're called, as even he was, we're called to suffer. And then it says these words, and while being reviled, in 2 Peter chapter 2, and while being reviled, he reviled not in return. And while suffering, he uttered no threats. But he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Your first temptation when criticized is to push back and to eye for an eye, the tooth for a tooth, to do that. And what Jesus is saying here, leave room for God in his judgment, in his evaluation. Let him Determine. And what he really says here in this verse, in the very end of verse 19, yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. 
And what he's saying here is, is that you just keep doing what you're doing, and in the end, what you're doing will prove to be right. Now, I can be a critic. I can say, I don't like what's going on. I think you're a glutton. I think you're whatever I might say about you. You're a demon-possessed. This is not true. Whatever it may be. But let me tell you something. Criticism does not change truth. It's only your opinion about truth, but it does not alter what truth is. In an age in which we're living where we, you know, you want to be part of this uh, political correctness, that you may be tempted to yield into the current trend of thought. And what Jesus is saying, really, John, stay in there. I'm going to. And he would say the same to us. Let the fruit of your life bear out. I love this, that it's not, and it's what he said to John when he doubted. Look at, look at what you see and what you hear. Tell him what you see and what you hear. This is the evidence. Listen, your life in the face of criticism is the evidence that will override their criticism. Just keep living that way. There's a story that is told about uh, uh, Gusto Dory, I think is his name, a great artist in the 1800s. Uh, I, I looked up some of his works even last night. I was looking. He's done a lot, a lot of paintings. He did a lot of paintings, a lot of um, sketches, just prolific. And a lot of those were along the biblical theme. But when he was traveling, going through the countries there, he had lost the passport or that rite of passage to go from this country to this country, what we call today a passport. And when he got there and was stopped, they asked for his credentials and he said, I lost mine. But I'm Gustav Dory and I'm, you you know, you know who I am and I've got a very important place that I need to go and be a part of and I'm asking you, please let me go through. Well, the guard there said, do you know how many people come through here with, with improper paperwork and claim to some kind of claim that they're an important person and they should be entitled to go through here? This is not new to me, the guard said. But if you are who you say you are, and he took a piece of paper and gave it to him, gave him a pencil, and he pointed it to three little peasants, three peasants that were standing over there, sketched their figure out in a few minutes. He took the piece of paper, he took the pencil, sketched it out, gave it to him. And the guy said, you are who you said you are, aren't you? You are Gustav Dory. See, the evidence was the deed that was done that silenced the critic or the judge. So Jesus is saying, you'll be vindicated. You'll be vindicated. Just keep being obedient to what you're doing. Criticism is hard to handle, though, isn't it? It's hard to be quiet. You know? But do it for the glory of God. All right. Well, the second thing that we have here is Jesus' response to indifference. Jesus' response to indifference. I I remember uh, hearing when I was just young that about the story of the teacher that wrote on the board uh, two words, ignorance and indifference. 
And this one kid looked at the other kid and says, what does that mean? And the kid looked at him and he says, I don't know and I don't care. <laughs> you know? <laughs> here's the indifference, you know. Here's the evidence that is here. What are we going to do in regards to that? So here, here's what Jesus does in this story. Now, he, he used the illustration of the kids here. Now he's taking three Gentile cities that were recognized by the Jewish people as being very sinful. I mean, incredibly sinful, full of debauchery, um, every kind of evil that you can imagine. And these would be cities that the Jewish people, to whom he was now speaking, would be well familiar with them. Tyre, Sidon, and Gomorrah, all three of those. And, uh, and then he uses three cities where Jesus had done lots of his ministry, as he says right here, Chorazin, Asadia, and also Capernaum, those three. And now he's contrasting those two. He's contrasting those two groups of people. Now, when he talks about had these deeds been done there, Chorazin would have repented or Capernaum would have repented. We're not talking about, of course, a city repenting. A city can't repent as much like Nineveh. It's the people that make it up. And he's talking about the people would have changed their course of direction. And and he says here, he's, he's also fulfilling or illustrating again that his objective is in doing the things that he did to prove who he was, was to draw them to repentance. All the miracles that he did, all these amazing things that he did was for repentance. So let's look at these verses then as we look at it. And then he began to denounce the cities which, were, uh, which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. So when there is uh, an indifference or um, I'm not paying attention to what God is doing, if I'm not repenting, and people say, oh, I, just, I just don't want to make a decision about that. That non-decision is a decision, and that leaves you then in a position to be judged. God is going to judge. And so it is a, what he's saying here in these four verses are severe judgments. If it does for you what it did for me when I was looking at this, it brought me to a position of sobriety. It opened my eyes to the awareness of what's really going on out there. There there are believers and non-believers and those who are pretending but they're not and those who are indifferent, but the the end result is still the same, that there is judgment. So he began to denounce them. Now the shocking thing is who he denounces. Notice what he says, and this word is given, verse 21, woe to you. Anytime woe to you is said, that means there's something serious about to happen. No, My mother used to say, I'm going to ask you a question. Be very careful how you answer that. She didn't say it that low in her voice, but (laughs) almost cynical though, you know, meaning don't mess with me, son. When Jesus says, woe to you, he is saying, this is serious. Pay attention. 
And then he begins to point him out. Woe to you, courtesan. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would, they, those cities would have repented long ago. And even expressing that in the most uh, severe form of repentance with sackcloth and ash. They would have piled it up. They would have jumped into the ash. They would have done whatever. They, w- they would have repented. Now, this is an amazing statement that he's making. He's judging. And these three cities, by the way, were very close in proximity. Capernaum is really where Jesus was kind of his headquarters there. It's where he stayed. And, um, and then the other two cities were very close by. So they're almost viewed as a group, a common group. Uh, some writers have revert, referred to them as the uh, evangelical trio, these three cities, because of the amount of the gospel that had been shared there and the, the miracles that had been done there. And now he's saying that had I done in those cities what I've done in yours, they would have repented. Now, what he's, who he's speaking of here is an amazing thing. Uh, Tyre and Sidon, almost every one of the major prophets speak of them and the wickedness that was in them. In fact, Ezekiel, when he speaks of them in Ezekiel chapter 28, goes beyond the king of Tyre that could not possibly fulfill all that was doing and associates that king with the activity of Satan himself. In fact, just look with me very quickly at that passage in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 28 one of the prophecies concerning who, who Satan is. I like to hear the pages turning. Way to go, you guys. But when I'm here on Sundays, unless I'm preaching, I've got my iPad down there. And I'm not catching up on the news. I'm actually taking notes. The word of the Lord, Ezekiel 28, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, say to the leader of Tyre, Thus saith the Lord God, Because your heart is lifted up, there's arrogance, and you have said, I am a God. I sit in the seat of gods, in the heart of the seas. You are the, you, um, yet you are a man and not God. Now, this is a judgment coming over. Although you make your heart like the heart of God. Let's skip on down there. By your great wisdom, verse 5, by your trade you have increased your riches, and your heart is lifted up because of your riches. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, because you have made your heart like the heart of God, therefore, behold, I will bring strangers upon you, the most ruthless of nations. That did happen, by the way. Babylonians did that. Uh, The Greek empire did that. And they will draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. They will bring you down to the pit. Verse 9, will you say, I am God? Verse 11, again, the Lord God came to me saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation against the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus saith the Lord God. You had a seal of perfection. Now, this is where it goes beyond. Remember, we talked about many times God will use an earthly situation and then take that earthly situation, describe it in such words that could not possibly be true of that person, meaning then that he's now telling us something that is true of another figure, in this case, Satan himself. 
You had the seal of perfection, verse 12, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden. Couldn't be the king of Tyre. He wasn't there. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. List those down there. On the day, in verse 13, on the day that you were created, they were prepared. So he's a created being. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You were right there with me. Cannot be true of the king of Tyre. This has to be referring to Satan. And walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally uh, filled with violence, and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God. And I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you by the multitudes of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade. You profaned your sanctuaries. Therefore, I have brought fire from the midst of you it has consumed you, and I have turned you to ashes on the earth. And he goes on. Would you say Tyre would be one of those top ten cities you'd want to go visit? I mean, it's a wicked, wicked place. I mean, to think that he would take this city and use it as a foundation to talk about Satan. So, uh, and, and Sinon is also very similar in his expression they're often associated together in the judgments. Uh, we have time to develop all that, but that's just true. And uh, Jesus is saying that as wicked as those cities were, had the things that I did in your presence, had I been done there, they would have repented. Again, the objective of his doing things, miracles, and his teaching was to bring them to repentance. But then he says this, if I go back to Matthew, and he says this in regards to that. Woe to you, woe to you. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ash. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. Judgment tells me here <laughs> that there are degrees of judgment. Now, we start with the base judgment. To not accept Jesus Christ is to be isolated from him forever, to be cast into hell in reality. But now he says that there is within that category of judgment, there are degrees of, there are categories. And what he's saying is, is that Sidon and Tyre will be further up the chain and you're going to be greater judged than them. Let me tell you something. When God reveals himself in an amazing way for the purpose of repentance and you are indifferent towards that, you pay no attention to it, you, you kind of just ignore it in fact, God says, I did all of these, these, these truths to witness. Now think about this. That's like somebody 
coming to church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And when you're doing that and you never make a repentant declaration, you're actually heaping judgment upon yourself. That's what he's telling me here. The more you hear, the more you're responsible for. Some may draw the conclusion, well, I'll quit listening. Well, you can quit listening, but that means then it won't be as severe, but it's still terrible. You know, it's still terrible. Well, then he draws this next group, and that is in verse 23. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? And then he makes, this is Jesus making the judgment. You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it would be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Again, the degrees of judgment that will be there. Now, this is an amazing thing that is being said here. Capernaum was just a wonderful, wonderful place that Jesus used to launch many of his miracles, many of his teachings. This is the place that the, uh, the Roman centurion son was healed. This is the place where Peter's mother-in-law was healed. This is the place that uh, we see close by that the uh, demons were cast out. It was on the side of the mountain that Jesus had one of his most major teaching, right outside of Capernaum on the Sermon on the Mount. It was also in Capernaum where the crowd gathered around him and he was pushed back and he had to get in a boat to finish. So at least two major discourses from this city. There were overwhelming evidence of who Jesus was. And they paid no attention. They were indifferent. Indifference seems to be even more severe than criticism. Because at least criticism, you've considered the truth and you're just rejecting it on the basis of, I don't think it's true. But indifference, you're saying, doesn't matter. I see all you're doing. I'm just going to make a choice. Where is it that we see God in action today? Where is that? You know, I... I heard just uh, about two and a half weeks ago a person that I've known all of my young life and up. And this, um, she was married to a man that was, in fact, her children called him uh, son of Satan. Her children called her father, their father, son of Satan. He was that cruel. He had been brought up by cruel people as well. They were uh, lay preachers, and they would beat those children within an inch of their lives just because they didn't sweep the porch properly. They were very, very ugly. And and this man had said to his wife, "Um, when I die, don't uh, don't take me into the church. Under no circumstances. You know, I'm gonna die, go to hell, and be with all my buddies. I don't want you to talk to me about Christianity. That's the way their whole marriage was, 54 years of marriage. Not quite the full 54 years because he became very sick. And uh, he had uh, 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 Parkinson's disease. He had uh, uh, cancer of the liver. He had uh, diabetes. 
I mean, his skin was literally falling off him. And she was the one, I mean, and it was always judgmental, critical, putting her aside. This is a schoolmate of mine. And, um, and, uh, and when he got really sick and he was criticizing her, she said, you know, you'd be very, you should be very, very careful. The only one left that cares for you is me. Don't push my buttons. And he said, you're right. So he did, she did back up at that point. But in his sickness, and he got under hospice care, and in the south there, they have, um, they have chaplains within their hospice system. And they go out and they visit. And this chaplain went there. This man listened to what he had to say. He listened to the gospel and embraced the forgiving impact that Jesus put upon his life. This was two weeks before he died. This wife heard him speaking in the room next. She kept him at home all this whole time. And she heard him speaking and she went in and she said, what did you say? Oh, he said, I was just talking. So then she became curious and she stood close to the room when she stepped out and listened. And he was praying. And he was praying for her. Lord, when I'm gone, I know where I'm going. Take care of her. You say, where are the works of God going on today? I tell you what, (laughs) when the gospel of Jesus Christ works in that situation, there is no greater manifestation of the power of God. Your all story that you shared with me last week, equally true. Another man shared about his son-in-law with me in the last month. That son-in-law called me. I've known what his life is like. And he said, and he called me and his, his life was falling apart. And then a friend of his called and said, shared the claims of Jesus with him and had been doing that. And, and then he in, accepted Christ as his personal savior. And his friend called him up six hours later and he said, did you just say that, say that prayer in order that uh, your wife would come back? No, I did it because I can't believe that anybody would love me so much that he would die for my wretched sins. I can't get over that. When he told me he was weeping, when he told me that, that's the evidence, that's the power of what Jesus is doing today. Yes, there are other miracles that are going on, but there is no greater miracle that can transpire today other than the transformation of the life born of receiving the clear message of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us and the forgiveness. He came, he did all of this so that we would repent. Now, what do I want to say in closing? I want to say two things to you. Don't let critics govern your conversation and your, and your, your lifestyle. Don't let them do that. They've rejected the message. Don't let them do that. That's what I would say. Be bold. Keep sharing the truth. The second thing I would say is, is that there are a lot of people out there that are good people and would even be viewed by others as decent people. But they're indifferent to the gospel. And indifference to the gospel in judgment is worse than rejection of the gospel because in reality it is a form only this is a a rejection based upon information what what do i want us to do then i want us to be aware that the people we come in contact with need what you have 
They need to know that. By the way, this woman, after her husband died, that I was telling you about, and the, they gathered there in the funeral home. He was there, and just the children were there. And this woman went over, celebrating his life in Christ, kissed her on the forehead, kissed him on the forehead. Rest in peace, she said. <laughs> Rest in peace. And the children, there was a witness to the children. Mom, how could you do that? Celebrating what God had done. Amen? Lord, we do um, say thank you. I love what the songwriter said. How can I say thanks? For the things you've done for me, things so undeserved as you did to prove your love for me. The voices of a million angels cannot express my gratitude. All that I am and all that I hope to be, I owe it all to you, Lord. That you would, even as was read during the worship time, that you would become uh, sin, that you would be uh, cast out, that you would be rejected. And you did that to bear our sins. And we thank you, Lord. We just rejoice in that. When we embraced you and all that you've done for us, when we responded to your call upon our lives and the gift of life, we were given new citizenship. We were made new. We had everything given to us pertaining to godliness and life. It was the point of new birth of living life. Oh God, we thank you. We thank you for that. And you willingly did that, not without great agony, not without great pain. But I'm so thankful, Lord, that you declared from the cross, it's finished, it's finished. And the redemptive plan for mankind was sealed. I pray that that redemption would be upon our lips all the time, would be displayed in our lives all the time, that we sing the song of a soul set free. And we're free indeed in the name of Jesus.